I speak tonight for the dignity of man and the destiny of democracy. May the turbulence of our age yield to the true time of peace, when men and nations shall share a life that honors the dignity of each, the brotherhood of all. I see a world of open borders, open trade, and most importantly, open mind. Hello and welcome to To the Republic, a show dedicated to civics, history, and U.S. institutions. I'm your host, Jake. And I'm Matt. Matt, how have you been? Good, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Um, how's life? Busy. Um, the world is a complicated place and we it, get to pick it apart a little bit. It is. Yeah. I'm excited to have, uh, have you back. I think we missed last month. So, yeah. um, we are uh, going to pick up kind of where we left off. I know you and I have dealt with more international relations issues, more international affairs. And I think this week we're going, this month, we're going to start with a little bit of kind of what are the institutions that are in place that allow for a semblance of governance mm-hmm. at the international at the international level, which is pretty much a system that's dominated by anarchy and a bunch of na- sovereign nation states trying to just figure it all out together. Yeah. So I figured just to kind of set as a primer, because I think this is a topic that I think a lot of, not a lot of people think about, but I think as we talk about this, I think people will see how important these institutions are and how much they actually do affect day-to-day life, even if it is indirectly. I'm going to start with uh, some questions here, if you'll, if you'll be my guinea pig. Okay. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. So question one, who are the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council? All right. We have the U.S., Yep. Uh, Russia, mm-hmm. Great Britain, France, and China. Yes, correct. That is the five um, there are actually more Security Council members, mm-hmm. uh, but they're on a rotating basis. basis yeah. And there's a general, the UN has a general assembly. We'll get into the more of the structure of the UN a little bit. Um, but I think that's important because one of the, the major key components to the UN Security Council is that all five of the permanent members have a veto power, mm-hmm. which some will argue kind of makes the UN Security Council um, ineffective because all it takes is one veto from a permanent member and the, whatever is on the table is, is dead. They, it's given a lot. Uh, those five members are given a lot of power within that institution. Mm-hmm. All right. So question number two, the world trade organization originated in the 1990s from what earlier agreement? That's a good question. I definitely don't know this one, but I believe potentially I heard from a friend. It was, um, the GATT conference or G-A-T-T? Yes. And what does GATT stand for? No idea. (laughs) (laughs) It's the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Yeah. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So the the GATT was a... It's not an organization. And the reason why it's not an organization is that it doesn't have a secretariat, um, which is basically a governing body. There aren't... uh, We'll see as a, a key feature to a lot of international organizations today is that they have one... Um... A, a governing a governing body, but they also have a secretariat, which is a bunch of people who are working as a member of that organization, not as a representative from their home state. Does mm. that does that make sense? Yeah. So yeah. instead of being a someone who was working on the British delegation to the World Trade Organization, you're you're a hired employee by the World Trade Organization. So you you're in theory you're supposed to leave your loyalties to your home country behind yeah. and you're working for the world trade organization yeah. um pretty much every regional and universal organization 
uh, we'll talk about the difference between that later, uh, has one of has a secretariat of some size, and the GATT didn't have that. Another major difference between the World Trade Organization and the GATT is that the, the GATT didn't have any enforcement mechanisms. Mm-hmm. One, because if it doesn't have a governing body, how's it going to enforce anything? Yeah. Whereas the World Trade Organization in the 1990s instituted that dispute resolution process, mm-hmm. which can tell if there's a grievance between two me- of its member states over trade. Mm-hmm. It can go to the dispute resolution process, go through a whole court hearing, and then there's a determination made and whatnot. They can hope to change um, the uh, the behavior of the offending of the offending state. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, so, question number three: What is Article Five of the NATO Charter? That is, uh, and to put it lightly, is an attack on one of us. It's an attack on all of us. Essentially, if there's any attack by a foreign um, adversary on a, a member state of NATO, um, all um, uh, members of NATO are required by that article to come to the defense of that country. So, for example, say if Estonia was attacked by Russia, um, all of NATO would um, uh, come to the aid of Estonia, whether it be militarily or or economically um, to help um, uh, quell the attack of an aggressive state. So for those of you who, who have been uh, loyal listeners, you probably remember us talking a bit about Article 5. But it's a, it's a really key um, a really key aspect of NATO, and I think that it, uh, it makes NATO very unique as a regional organization because it's rare in human history that you have such staunch and codified alliances mm-hmm. that... If a, if, a, if a state that's being attacked that doesn't necessarily directly affect you, you're still going to you're still going to go and defend that country because you have an obligation to do so mm-hmm. and you've made that obligation. So I think that a lot of what makes these international institutions important is that these it's the creation of these norms and then how norms over time govern behavior. Mm-hmm. And I think NATO has done a really good job, especially through Article 5 of, 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 of creating those norms. Yeah. Um, so the last question, and I think this is a good segue question to our topic, is what is a global problem? A global problem. Well, I know most people are probably aware of the coronavirus um, and its spread. You may have heard reports from the World Health Organization, um, which is like one of these global uh, multilateral institutions we've been kind of hinting towards. You've also heard it from the CDC, um, the Center for Disease Control. That's kind of more of a regional, maybe more specific to the U.S., but they kind of play more of a regional role, I guess. Um but uh, that's an example of one. You could also look at um, climate change. You could look at, um, I mean, pretty much anything that's kind of beyond the scope of an individual country's control, um, where it starts to kind of envelop more and more of the world, even more than just regional, something that really is kind of more of a global issue. Like, again, with the coronavirus, it's spread as something beyond the reach of just, you know, China. Mm-hmm. Um, you're finding it in Japan, Italy, the U.S. Um, it's it's, it's kind of um, spreading to a point where not one individual can take action to respond to it. Yeah, I think I think you, you summed that up perfectly. I, I would say it's a... It's a, a global problem is a problem without borders. It yeah. transcends um, the borders of, of uh, these the map drawn countries that we that we mm-hmm. see when we anytime you look at an atlas or you look at a, a globe. And I, I think that it's uh, it's something that because because it transcends borders, it's something that not one state itself can mm-hmm. can uh, can hope to to solve. And you know, like the United States, for how powerful it is, cannot by itself combat climate change. Uh, I think some other, a couple other things I had on, you know, you, you brought up the coronavirus, global pandemics, right? Mm-hmm. Like China by itself is not going to stop the spread of it. It spreads yeah. so fast. Mm-hmm. Um, I would also say like human trafficking, yeah. um, water, uh, access to water. Like mm-hmm. what's the biggest difference, like biggest complaint between India and Pakistan, right? Is the water access in the Kashmir. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I would also say refugee crises. Mm. Uh, you know, how do, how does Europe and how does the world respond to mass migrations of humans due to displacement of climate from climate change or uh, from war and famine? Mm-hmm. And these are all major issues that the international community through these institutions uh, tries to tries to address. Mm-hmm. And we'll talk about whether it's effective in that, why it's ineffective at times. And uh, we hope that this kind of sheds some light on a uh, on a topic that I don't I, I think it's really overlooked, especially uh, especially today. Mm-hmm. I, I was listening to the Democratic debate in South Carolina, and I don't think anybody brought up, I don't think one candidate brought up any of the international institutions no. and the roles that they play. I really haven't heard too much about them throughout the entire election process, you know, this year. In uh, America, play, which is funny because the United States plays such a prominent role mm-hmm. in the major universal organizations, mm-hmm. and they're, they're in a leadership role in almost every single one of them. Mm-hmm. Actually, I would say every single one of them. So uh, before we really dive deep in, I have to uh, take care of some housekeeping business. And that is, if uh, you're liking what you're listening to uh, through KXRW and X-Ray, please consider donating. Uh, You can go to kxrwvancouver.org and place a donation. There's a donation tab right there on the homepage. If you like what you're listening to here on with To The Republic, there's some other great shows on KXRW like uh, Joe Clemens's uh, The Common Good and I'd also say Filibust. I love listening to Filibusters uh, from John Oberg. Uh, he is such a great guy and really, really funny. Uh, KXRW has also a couple really great uh, music uh, shows with Gordon Green's uh, Music Planet and The Mud Club from Ivan Ivan. Uh, please consider uh, listening. You can always find on... Uh, you can listening to those. You can always find the the past recordings of those episodes in this show, also on KXRW's website uh, or the X Ray app. Anyway, so now that we have kind of taken care of that, let's get into this a little bit. So I think our first major little segment, our first major segment, is going to be uh, what are the major international institutions? And I will start with uh, universal organizations. So I I kind of just had a list here of the UN, the World Trade Organization, the International Monetary Fund in the World Bank group. So we'll start with the UN. Uh, Did you want to jump in? Yeah, I think it's important to kind of realize where the UN kind of got its foundations. It first really Mm, actually started in World War One, before its founding. Um, After World War One, the Allied powers came together and tried to form an organization um, that would try to mitigate the opportunities for a repeat of um, uh, the World War. Um, So they formed the League of Nations. Um, And it was kind of this first attempt at a um, multilateral organization um, with, with the intent to kind of be an arbiter to prevent um, a mass conflict that enveloped the world because that's, again, the world war is yeah. kind of self-descriptive. However, exactly. as, as most of us know from taking our you know history courses, um, it, it failed to live up to its um, mission. Um, and obviously we had a second world war. Mm-hmm. Um, but that kind of also led to the rebirth of this movement as, you know, founding of the UN. Um, uh, after seeing back-to-back wars with um, massive casualties and, and, and long-standing repercussions, um, the international community kind of came together to form an organization to really try to prevent another massive-scale war mm-hmm. um, uh, and, and, and also answer some other um, larger questions, but really um, kind of was born out of the uh, the um, destruction of the Second World War. That's really well put. And I think that the the creators of the UN, which was uh, the, the UN was being negotiated 
even in the early stages of World War II, because I think mm-hmm. the, the Allied powers of the United States, Great Britain, and Russia realized that there was going to need to be something created on the when this war was reached its completion that um, that would keep something from this magnitude of happening again. Mm-hmm. To try to create a rules-based system where states can go to a forum to air their grievances instead of relying on just conflict Mm. uh, with each other to solve disputes. And um, uh, Winston Churchill, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and Joseph Stalin met several times during during World War II to kind of create the negotiation. The early kind of structure of these of, of what ultimately ended up becoming the UN, the Yalta Conference. Um, ultimately, the, the United Nations came into existence in 1945 at the San Francisco Conference. So right after the, the end of mm-hmm. World War II, and it kind of set up a lot of uh, a lot of what we see today. And, and the UN has expanded so much in its scope and scale mm-hmm. over the years. Now it, it handles a lot of handles a lot of humani- a lot of humanitarian aid. Um, There's so many different things that the UN does. Uh, it's massive in their in refugee crisis handling refugee crises. It has probably one of the most controversial aspects, and that's the UN peacekeeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were talking about that before this a little bit. Did you want to kind of get into what UN peacekeeping is? Yeah, and then kind of how we talked about having an enforcement arm for the um, uh, organizations we were talking about. Um, the UN has various ways of enforcing its policies and, mm-hmm. and, and its agreements. Um, some is through by economics, um, like, you know, uh, with member states uh, agreeing to certain terms and conditions. Uh, others are um, through arbitrary negotiations, Um but they also have a military aspect of it, the UN peacekeeping force. Mm-hmm. And though they don't don't necessarily label it as a you know interventionist military force, their kind of design was to intervene um, in certain circumstances. I think um, some of our listeners may recall the uh, conflict in Rwanda, the R- Rwandan genocide, mm-hmm. um, where the UN was deployed and and honestly had a um, really underperformed. <laughs> Uh, in preventing or stopping um, the genocide from um, continuing, mm-hmm. um, but it's been it's been used in, in many countries. I think right now they're in Mali, um, trying to end um, some of the civil strife there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, f- they're they're uh, yeah. There's a lot of operations yeah. going yeah. on in Mali. Yeah, you'll find them all over the place. But I think the the um, point of the UN peacekeeping force was to be one to stop conflicts from escalating further um, or to prevent. Um, uh, further crimes um if no other state would intervene um at least that's my understanding of the peacekeeping force Mm -hmm. yeah so that's uh, i think a a major part of what the un does um peacekeeping has definitely i think the rwandan genocide really forced the un to have to address what exactly what is what is its purpose and goals for its peacekeeping operations and in a lot of ways it's it's it does pair with other, like it uses NATO in a lot of ways to um, to kind of be its enforcing arm a little bit as a workaround because we talked a little bit about how the UN Security Council has that veto power. And it's really hard because you have such competing interests between China, Russia, and then France, United States, and Great Britain. Mm-hmm. I think when you talk about the UN, it's, it's easy to talk just about the Security Council, but you have universal membership in the UN. There's only a handful of countries that aren't are not member states. And... Um, the the other major portion is the general is the UN General Assembly, and that's made up of 193 nations. Um, every state in the system, 
uh, when a resolution is passed, it's not it's but it's not binding. That's the that's the biggest thing is that like they the GN, the General Assembly can pass these resolutions, but they're not binding. And then the then the Security Council can actually veto it. One state, one vote, in um in the General Assembly. So it, it's kind of the whole the whole idea behind the UN is to is to create this this notion that it has there's a there's a equality between sovereign states and even within the un charter um i think it's article two or article three which basically states that the sovereignty of 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 a nation state is paramount and that any violation of that sovereignty by another causes for an act of war yeah and that doesn't always end up working out because like we said competing interests of great powers the in the only real um time that the un there's only been a couple times in in history in the history of the un where it's actually allowed for the use of force one being iraq's invasion of kuwait in the early 90, 1990s and then also north korea's invasion of south korea which the only reason why that wasn't vetoed by russia is because russia was abstaining from mm-hmm. the Security Council at that time. They were yeah. mad at the West, and then so they had walked away from the UN at the time. And then South North Korea invades, and because Russia's not there to veto, they're able to to pass that resolution. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, the China that we see on the Security Council today isn't the China that was originally on there. No. was originally on there. It was actually the... the Republic the, of China. Exactly. Which, which was, is um, essentially we're exiled to Taiwan. <laughs> exactly. Um, and that and that infuriated Russia because they felt like that was just the West imposing its 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 views on the on the on the rest. You'll hear that's that's a big thing in the UN is Russia constantly complaining that the West is pushing their views on everybody else. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so that's kind of a, a a good primer. I think we'll take a quick break. Uh, when we'll come back, we'll talk about some of the other uh, less flashy but I think very important institutions that deal with uh, very specific issues more than the UN, which is a very more broad. Um, set of um, has a very more broad set of goals so you've been listening to to the republic i'm jake and i'm matt we'll be right back kxrw community radio wants to thank our friends and sponsors at boomerang therapy works where exercise is medicine at boomerang they offer a variety of one-on-one treatment options that can be tailored to your health and wellness They offer physical therapy, massage therapy, personal trainers, exercise programs, group classes, and specialize in customized Parkinson's treatments. Located in downtown Vancouver, more info available at boomerangtherapyworks.com, where exercise is medicine. Community radio like this is brought to you by the generous support by our founding sponsors at ADCO Commercial Printing and Graphics. Clark County's local print shop since 1993. ADCO features stationery, posters, flyers, tickets, business cards, stickers, catalogs, and much more. Print on anything and mail anywhere. Learn more at adco1.com. That's A-D-C-O, the number one, dot com. Welcome back to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. In our last segment, we talked about kind of the introduction to uh, international institutions. And in this segment, we're going to talk more about the economic side of the uh, the international uh, realm. And that is, uh, we're going to start with the, we'll start with the Bretton Woods institutions, which are the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank Group, often called the Bretton Woods Twins because they, they came out of the same conference at Bretton Woods um, shortly after uh, the end of World War II. So uh, I think we'll start with the IMF. What the, tri- what the IMF was set up to, uh, to accomplish was to help 
states that were in financial hardships, states being countries. One of the the areas of concern that the kind of the framers of this international system after World War II identified as one of the major causes of conflict, states becoming economic, uh, economically um, destitute and then in need of help. So what the IMF does is it helps create, um, it helps give it gives what it does is it gives loans to countries that have balance of payment issues. So that means that they don't have enough of their own currency to be able to pay off any sort of any debts that they have to other from other states through trade or whatnot. And then they also help with uh, they also help give certain amount of loans for infrastructure. But it's mostly about being able to get um, states who are in a, a lot of who are in a lot of debt out of debt. Yeah. And it's kind of like a debt consolidation. It's kind of a debt consolidation loan is what the International Monetary Fund does. Uh, That's kind of the basics basics of it. But it it also has a major uh, role to play in terms of creating exchange rates between countries. Mm -hmm. And um, there has been a lot of uh, tension between the United States. There was a lot of tension between the United States, especially during between Nixon and the IMF. And when he removed the United States from the gold standard, it completely put the IMF's role into flux because now, because the United States, because the United States dollar was tied to gold at that point, when the United States pulled itself off of that standard, it really under, it really threw the entire economic system in, in, mm-hmm. into, in, into real instability. So now they still have the, the dollar as kind of like the standard bearer of currencies and everything else is is either on a rolling is either on like a on a rolling exchange rate or on a fixed exchange rate relative to the dollar. We don't really need to get into all of that, but just know that the IMF plays a very um, key role in in, in monetary stability. Yeah. And they're kind of like our like the United States. We have the Fed. Mm-hmm. The IMF is like the Fed for the international system. Yeah. And to hope to to create that stability within finance that doesn't force states to then have to use. Um, external means to <laughs> alleviate its debts or to go and find more more money and more resources, they can go to a forum that is going to give them a short-term loan. One of the biggest complaints, though, with the IMF is what's called the Washington Consensus. Mm-hmm. Um, did you want to talk about the, the Washington Consensus at all? I'm actually not as familiar with the Washington Consensus, so that might be something good for you to take up. Okay, so the, yeah. the Washington Consensus is, is in the mid-1990s, the IMF was really big on its loan conditionality and trying to identify what the major issues were within states and why they con- continue to default on their loans. The Washington Consensus introduced... For the, really for the first time, loan conditionality on states. If they're going to borrow from the IMF, they would have to be able to, they have to meet certain standards. Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of it's anti-corruption. Um, other things is trying to become um, more sustainable with your with your labor practices, making sure that there's, there's better labor standards, all that kind of things. Things that they identified that would help the health of an economy over time. Mm-hmm. The problem was, is that it looked, in, in, in a lot of ways, it was, it was very harsh. Pun, it, a lot of it were really harsh, um, in rap enforced rapid change and that w- that received a lot of pushback in the, mm-hmm. in the IMF and the um, a lot of a lot of countries started kind of pulling their support for the International Monetary Fund and it kind of in a lot of ways it did force the IMF to have to restructure how it did its its conditionality in not making those those changes um, as dramatic and as harsh mm-hmm. so that they kind of had to find a middle ground there but you can kind of see where the the ideology comes from loan conditionality mm-hmm. if you're going to loan out a ton of money you want to make sure that there's things in place that are going to allow that country to pay you back mm-hmm. so you can kind of see both sides of that argument yeah. a little bit yeah so that's the that's the international monetary fund kind of in uh, in a nutshell mm-hmm. uh, we'll move on to the the world bank group which is 
kind of the other side of the International Monetary Fund. The World Bank Group has three or four, actually five different uh, different banks that each have their own kind of specific niche within the broader system. But essentially what the World Bank Group does is that it uh, it loans out for development. Mm-hmm. So it, it more it's not really on the finance side, it's more on the development side. Mm-hmm. Uh, you'll see the World Bank Group will um, will fund infrastructure projects in third world countries. It will do what it can to try to modernize developing countries so that they, their their economies can be more efficient and their economies can be more um, more competitive on the international on the international stage with with more greater industrial powers yeah. like the United States and in Europe. Um, some of the the, the the new things that the World Bank Group has been trying to do is actually working with the UN's Millennial. Um, development goals, which is to try to create green energy around the world so that the World Bank Group has certain um, conditions in, within their with their, within their own lending structure. The World Bank Group recently passed a resolution saying that they're not going to fund anything that is in any sort of project that's using coal as a primary source of energy. Mm-hmm. So like a, in, like there was a recently there was an in, uh, a coal plant in India, the country of India wanted money from the World Bank Group to fund in the World Bank Group turned down their loan because they said, well, as a policy, we don't fund coal. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's a lot of, there's a, we're talking like, but there is like billions of dollars that are being um, mm-hmm. distributed out to these to these different countries. In the United States and both the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank Group has, um, it's, it's interesting how the, how the voting structure works and it's based on how much money you give to the, like you loan to the bank itself to then be loaned out again to other countries and because the united states has the lion's share of the world bank group in the imf in terms of how much money it donates to those two institutions it all it has the most amount of votes within those institutions so the united states really does benefit and in a lot of ways has a a major influence on how those on how those um, institutions act all right so um now we have gotten ourselves to the world trade organization do you want to talk about the wto at all yeah, um, the World Trade Organization kind of, again, piggybacking off these economic institutions are, again, to further um, integrate the world economy to improve um, economic exchanges between nations, um, to improve uh, economic cooperation, um, probably mm-hmm. is the, the best term, the economic cooperation amongst uh, member states, I mean, non-member states. Um, it's... Uh, is probably, I'd say, one of the largest financial um, multilateral organizations, probably alongside with the World Bank and um, uh, International Monetary Fund. Um, but uh, yeah, they're, um, again, one of those pivotal um, institutions for um, helping with uh, countries meet specific, like, you know, trade mm-hmm. um, deals. Um, I don't know. Was the TPP um, through the WTO? I forgot. No, it was, it was the a Trans Pacific yeah. Partnership is a is a separate, yeah, uh, a separate agreement between um, Pacific Rim countries. Oh, okay, I didn't know it's, if they had any. It's separate than the WTO. No. Oh no, 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 I didn't know if it was, I, I didn't mean the same organization. I, I thought it was. Um, I didn't know if the WTO helped with um, kind of the rules of the TPP. Well, kind of because the the, the WTO sets up universal mm-hmm. uh, rules, mm-hmm. and then. Um, from there, these regional organizations mm-hmm. can kind of create their own rules within that broader system. Mm-hmm. So in a way, they kind of do reinforce each other a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, they, what they allow, what, why regional um, trade organizations are so um, popular is that they allow for semi-aligned states to be able to um, work out even better trade mm-hmm. nego- trade uh, trade negotiations and even finer tuned. Um, 
uh, rules based uh, rules based policies to help um, you know spur free mm-hmm. trade between those countries. Mm-hmm. With an elimination, basically, what the World Trade Organization tries to do is to regulate trade and to reduce tariffs. Mm-hmm. And tariffs are a tax that importers pay. It's it's a, a country a, a country's government will will impose a tariff on trade to make sure that they're trying to protect their their own domestic manufacturers and suppliers. So when you have an, a, a producers have to compete with producers that are of the same product in another country, what that does is that lowers price. So what a country tries to do with tariffs is to create a, a, a tax that a domestic consumers pay when that, when that comes in. What that does is it, it increases price relative to the domestic price, which makes the domestic product more... Um, more favor more favorable and more likely to buy uh, more more likely to be purchased from uh domestic consumers than they would be to buy from the the foreign goods mm-hmm. in to try to eliminate tariffs because tariffs increase price over time and create for a lot of instability in strife between countries is that um is that the world trade organization tries to do its best to eliminate tariffs at, at all um at, at all costs one of the the big um what we had mentioned it earlier is that the dispute resolution process and it's not the WTO is completely restricting tariffs. They just want to make sure that tariffs are being applied fairly mm-hmm. and not being used as more of like as like a weapon from certain countries to impose their will on others. It's it's a fine line. And that's why there's this whole dispute resolution process, mm-hmm. which is kind of under threat right now because because the United States has such a powerful position within these, the, the Trump administration is kind of holding the WTO hostage by not allowing um, new appointments of judges to the dispute resolution process. So there's only three right now, which is the minimal minimum amount of judges that can be on there. There's a judge that's coming up for re-election, and if the if the United States doesn't allow for the nomination of a replacement judge, the WTO dis, dis, uh, dispute resolution process is going to. F- is going to cease to exist. Mm-hmm. And then you can quite, you can ask yourself at that point, what is the WTO? Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of questions to ask ourselves about this organization going forward, but it essentially what it, it just does try to attempt to regulate trade between countries. Um, I, I believe that it, it is important um, because it helps alleviate tensions between, between states. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's kind of uh, the, the world trade organization in a, in a nutshell. Um, we can get into some of the the regional regional organizations mm-hmm. um, like NATO. Uh, that's North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Do you want to talk a little bit about NATO? Yeah, so NATO is um, uh, an important regional um, organization. That's um, more of a military alliance than you'd say an economic or um, a political one. Though it, it does have some ec- economic elements to it. Um, there are 29 uh, member states of NATO, is that correct? 29. 29, yes. yeah. And uh, most of them kind of fall along. You'll actually see similar lines through um, Cold War era because that's where NATO really became mm-hmm. um, prevalent. was just after the Second World War and kind of going into the Cold War. Um, and so uh, though there are some um, member states like Turkey and, and other states who are maybe not, you know, you think of like East and West, you know, with uh, the Soviet Union and, and Europe, mm-hmm. um, you may not think of them there. Um, it's a very um, powerful military alliance. Um, they came to the United States' aid following the September 11th attacks. Um, we, I think that was the only time um, Article 5 has ever been actually... Um, used was it, it is yeah that's the only yeah. time article 5 has ever been invoked yeah it was um after 9 11 um so uh but it's also a good deterrence for conflict in the region yes, yes um, that's a very good point yeah um as you um as our listeners may know um 
after the collapse of the Soviet Union, a lot of Eastern European countries um, became newly independent, like Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Ukraine, um, and a lot of them um, kind of were in a, in a in a weird limbo between joining um, a more uh, Russian-friendly um, uh, path economically, politically, uh, or trying to become more um, integrated with the West. Mm-hmm. Um, some uh, former Soviet blocs uh, or for, some Soviet um, countries have... Um, join NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe uh, Latvia is one of them, Estonia. Um, but for example, Ukraine is not um, a NATO member. Yeah. Um, so when we saw the um, uh, annexation of Crimea um, a few years ago, um, I believe it was in 2012, yeah. um, they, uh, we weren't able to, uh, or NATO wasn't able to, uh, you know, um, invoke Article 5 because Ukraine's not a NATO member. It's not a member state. And so yeah. there's no deterrence for a power, a power like Russia to invade. Now, NATO in its beginning uh, was to be a, a military alliance to deter an expanding Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. And that's not necessarily what it is for now, though Russia would argue it is um, an organization um, that threatens them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's also used for other areas in the world, for example, in Turkey. Um, you know, if Turkey, for example, were to be attacked by... Um, Let's just say Iran, for example. Not yeah. that that's happened, but just to use this example, we would invoke Article Five to um, protect um, Turkey. Again, mm-hmm. Article Five being one war, an attack on one is an attack on all. Um, that it's 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 a way to set up a security system to deter powers from invading smaller powers powers more with the backing of the united states great britain um france several other larger military powers i'm um, not that it's just to protect the smaller allies it's to protect pretty much the west and and and, and its member states from um attack from um, potential enemies or, or rival powers i like that you brought up the the point about um being backed by the smaller states being backed by the the by bigger powers Mm -hmm. because I think that is that's one um, kind of balancing act that these institutions have to play is that they have to keep they have to keep the the major powers um, involved in some way because they're the financial backers and then they're also the they're all in in terms of like a security institution like the like the like NATO uh, they're the they're the they're the muscle behind it right NATO like NATO loses a lot of its teeth if the United States isn't isn't a part of it so like you have to try to find a balance of making sure that the, the great powers' interests are being met, so they still have a reason to be there, mm-hmm. but then also allowing agency for smaller states. Yeah, and the other thing with NATO is it's not a harmonious organization all the time. If, if, if our listeners may not know, it's not one of those campfire song friends. Um, <laughs> it can get very contentious there, too. Right yeah. now, its biggest contention is with Turkey. Um, Turkey and NATO are not always seeing eye to eye, specifically over the Syrian civil war, mm-hmm. um, and it's been causing conflict. Um, Turkey's also been kind of leaning more towards um, uh, support with Russia, yep. which um, has been putting the uh, alliance kind of in question. Um, but it's not just there. Um, there are other states around the world who are trying to become members of NATO. Ukraine, for example, is, mm-hmm. is debating becoming a NATO member. Um, and as you know, you, uh, or maybe our listeners may or may not know, there's a, um, a civil war going on in Ukraine as well, though not as to the, to the extent of like Syria. Um, Eastern Ukraine is in a, um, quite a bit of a turmoil. Which is one of the major reasons why Ukraine can't become yeah. a... They've, they've applied for NATO membership several times and yeah. have been rejected because of its... Um, its border issues, mm-hmm. and then the fact that it has political instability within yeah. its borders, that NATO doesn't want to bring in a state that it could potentially have to that heightens the risk of having to invoke Article Five for something that that country kind of 
started in itself. So it, it's um, NATO wants to be very careful about what kind of countries it does mm-hmm. uh, it does let in. Um, in in you know NATO does so much. I don't think we think about in terms of cyber cybersecurity today. Mm. Um, they're they're on the forefront of that. They do a lot of ant- because there's still a lot of mines left over in the uh, in some of the north northern uh, northern Pacific Ocean left over from World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, Estonia and some of those uh, Baltics, some of the Baltic states and then in uh, Nordic states do a lot of anti mining sweeping and mm-hmm. and a lot of it also just making sure there's joint. Um, there's constantly uh, joint military operations going on between NATO countries to, to make sure that in the event that it needs to be used, NATO is at its top readiness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I think that this is a good discussion. I think we'll continue on regional organizations, but we do need to take a break and hear from our sponsors. Um, when we come back, we will talk about the European Union um, and then briefly touch on, because we're running out of time, uh, BRICS the TPP, which we mentioned a little bit in the African Union. Uh, So you have been listening to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. We'll be right back. Many thanks to our friends at Say Chow Catering, Columbia River Taproom and Eatery. Chef Peter has been cooking for over 20 years in the Vancouver area. Private events include wine tasting, wine dinners, appetizer parties, and cooking demos. Say Chow Taproom and Eatery boasts space for private events or drop-in for a quick refreshment and live music on Thursday and Friday evenings. Just a stone's throw away from the Columbia River, Say Chow Greater Vancouver's premier catering company. Conveniently located at 2501 Southeast Columbia Way, Suite 270 in Vancouver. More information available at www.say-chow.com. That's www.say-cio.com or directly at 360-210-5522. KXRW is brought to you by the generous support from our friends at New Vansterdam. They are the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. You can visit at newvansterdam.com for more information regarding their specials and discount days like CBD Sunday and Munchie Monday. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. Welcome back to To the Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. In our last segment, we talked um, a bit about the the, the post-war World War II institutions on the international stage at the UN. Uh, we finished up our talk on the UN. Uh, that was all, that also was in our first segment as well. And then we talked about the World Trade Organization, International Monetary Fund, and World Bank Group. And then began a little bit of talk on regional orgs, uh, mm-hmm. organizations like uh, NATO. And now we're going to um, just briefly discuss, even though there's so much there, uh, I feel bad skipping over them, but the European Union, uh, BRICS, and the African Union. Did you want to start with the EU? Yeah, so um, the EU was kind of, uh, again, this post-World War II organization um, that uh, was built to, again, kind of foster cooperation amongst its states. As we know, Europe has a history of um, uh, intense military conflict, and Mm -hmm. so it was was another way to uh, be an arbiter for peace. Um, it was also kind of a way to set by United States of Europe, um, in a way, um, and, and foster economic cooperation, political cooperation, and, 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 um, kind of the, an amalgamation and, and, uh, and molding of a true United European society. Mm -hmm. Um, right now it's a, it's a pretty powerful economic power. Um, uh, again, it, it, it has some very unique rules. Um, each member states kind of its voting powers are very unique there. Frankly, 
um, too complicated to go into depth with right now. <laughs> um, but it's it's a um, one of those uh, regional powers that has a little bit more um, ability to be uh, an enforcing mechanism compared to the UN. Um, mm-hmm. Again, you've mentioned that the UN is a very um, broad sweeping organization, um, whereas being a regional organization has a little bit um, better abilities to enforce its policies mm-hmm. and hold its um, members accountable because it's a smaller group that's yeah. a member members of it again mm-hmm. it's most of europe most of western europe and, and um, central europe and some eastern european countries as well yeah. um but uh, uh it's a it, that's kind of my view of um the eu yeah the the i think you're 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 right on there with the eu um it's 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 contentious there's a lot of people who don't who don't like it, but because it offers such good economic benefits, states still put up with it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, unless you're Great Britain, Britain yeah. <laughs> um, who who decided that it's the economic benefits that it receives from the European Union is not worth uh, the encroachment on its sovereignty mm-hmm. and its ability to make um, any decision that it wants within its borders. Mm-hmm. And that was something that uh, Britain pushed back against and it voted on a referendum to leave. And they've since... Uh, after years of of, of infighting um, and trying to go negotiate with the with Brussels, which is the seat of the EU's power, uh, we're able to reach a nego- negotiation. So the EU is, is it's interesting. Like where is where is it going to go in the future? Losing one of it's probably it's it's one of its two biggest economies. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do other states start to jump ship too? So that's a big uh, that's a big question. Uh, I think you're right though. The European Union plays such an important role of uh, creating environment where states or countries that historically have fought so much (laughs) over little things even the littlest of things uh making sure that the cost of war um outweighs the benefits of um the cost of war are much higher than uh than if they don't go to war and try to find a, a cooperative solution, which is going to make everybody better off in the long run. And I think that's that ultimately is kind of what the EU is. Um, we'll just quickly move on to, to BRICS, which is an acronym for Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. That's an economic union between semi-aligned states, although it's weird that South Africa is in there because I wouldn't yeah. really think they're a democracy. They don't really <laughs> um, align politically with um, with Russia or China. And even Brazil is somewhat of a in, in India itself. Like it's that's a really weird amalgamation. Yeah. Of uh, of seems kind of like the island of misfit toys. Yeah, but. it is. <laughs> um, but it's a powerful economic union. Those there are some major economies in in that uh, trade organization yeah. there, mm-hmm. which kind of create their own rules for for trade between between themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the African Union, which I yeah. think really gets overlooked, and we're going to be guilty of that today because we're <laughs> running out of time. Uh, but a little bit, of, you want to go in a little bit about the African Union? Yeah, the African Union, similar to how the EU was set up, um, though not during the same period, is a, is a union for, to foster cooperation amongst um, African nations. Um, Africa is a massive continent with a um, in continually growing population, mm-hmm. um, economies that are really starting to surge and come into their own. Um, but there's also a lot of conflicts, um, both ethnically, religiously, um, politically, um, that uh, fosters um, a need for a larger multilateral um cooperation mm-hmm. amongst uh, regional neighbors yeah. um but i think it's headed in addis ababa uh, ethiopia yeah um and it is um a it's a emerging um regional um organization that's it's becoming increasingly uh, influential mm-hmm. i'm not just on the regional stage but on the world stage a, a continent like africa which has so many different countries and so many different interests and, and problems um that need 
addressing, especially with climate change um, and just political instability ab- uh, abound and having a some sort of semblance of governance over the top of that kind of anarchic structure uh, does, I think, will in the long run kind of help. I You're seeing what's happening in, in, in Western Africa right now with a lot of uh, uh, separatist groups, especially in Nigeria and how... Um, uh, President Bakari is trying mm-hmm. to, to to handle that, um, trying to spread democracy and and values throughout uh, Western Sahara. Mm-hmm. It, there's there's a lot of things that uh, the Europe, the African Union is trying to accomplish that are very good goals, and I think that gets us into kind of this discussion on regionalism versus universalism. And mm-hmm. we talked about universe, the universal ones, which again, that's like the UN, which it has broad sweep, broad membership mm-hmm. in whereas a regional organization allows for, con- you know, either whether it's continent wide or it spans more cultural, um, more cultural boundaries. Cause I think if you look at, you know, NATO, right, it's not just to Europe, it's also Canada and the United States. There's also been talks about bringing in Japan because Japan Cult, kind of not really culturally, but at least in terms of political structures, very, is is very democratic mm-hmm. today. And so, does that align with? Does that make? So, can you expand regionalism to mm-hmm. include something like that? So, what really kind of what is regionalism? That's a really philosophical question. But does regionalism undercut or does it reinforce universal institutions? Yeah, in my eyes, um, I think regionalism reinforces um, universal institutions in that. Um, though they may compete um, from time to time, and, and, and there may be conflict between, you know, like organizations like the UN, mm-hmm. African Union, so on and so forth, it's an arbiter for communication and cooperation amongst member states, regardless of the level. Um, and I think it's a it's a transition to eventual universalism because I think we all believe at the end of the day that communication, cooperation, and economic um, support is something we all strive to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we want to diminish um, the amounts of conflicts we have around the world. And I think they really um, set up um, those goals um, that we all are striving to. Yeah. Um, and, and I know some would argue that um, regional organizations have better um, enforcement mechanisms than universal ones like the UN. Mm-hmm. But I think that's kind of missing the point. I think the one of the bigger points in my eyes is that um, it's fostering a dialogue um, and it's fostering communication with these states so that um, conflicts can be avoided and, and, and peaceful solutions can be found. Yeah, I think um, one of my professors at American um, kind of uh, they described regional institutions as kind of an incubator yeah. for how it's easier to cooperate with with a neighboring country that you have more linguistic, uh, cultural and ethnic ties to mm-hmm. than say you would on somebody from another, you would with somebody, another state from another continent, mm-hmm. which you don't really have anything that ties and binds you together. Um, so the cooperation between those countries are, is much more difficult, which is why I think sometimes the universal institutions can become so, um, slow and prodding and they don't really get anything done Whereas a, a regional organization I think is, is so much more flexible and sensitive to the problems that are with that are within its borders or within its within its its sphere of influence, because someone like in, to give the African Union for example, someone in a problem in South Sudan is probably who's going to be better equipped to handle that? A, a organization that has um, an organization that has more intimate knowledge within its secretariat or within its decision makers, or someone in Europe who is the head of the UN that has has that has some understanding of it 
But ultimately, there's so many other things that the UN has to try to do. I think regionalism also really helps kind of bring a microscope to issues that the UN is just never going to get to because of the, the, the breadth and depth of the issues mm-hmm. that the UN is trying to deal with, these big global challenges. Yeah. The regional... The, the regional organizations have a better job of can do a better job, I think, of narrowing and, 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 and narrowing the scope down and in, in, in dealing with more of those regional and local problems mm-hmm. uh, that, that that arise. So uh, that's kind of a, a brief little discussion on uh, on regionalism and universalism, because I, I, I do think that there can be competing interests there, though, like mm-hmm. say the U.N. wants to wants countries in Africa to do something specific or the World Bank group wants a country to change the way it does something mm. but the the African Union says no we we don't want that so you've got this budding of yeah. this budding heads of interests so there there is like you you had mentioned it uh, where there can be conflict and tension between yeah between those different organizations and i think that's kind of where you could argue there is a little bit of undercutting mm-hmm. um and then do states become more loyal to the region than they do the, than this idea of universalism. So mm-hmm. yeah, there's, there's, there is a lot there. So I think what in our last like, you know, couple minutes here, I think we need to talk about some of the, we, we've done a lot to talk up these institutions. I think we also need to talk a little bit about their critiques. Um, and what is a critique that you, you see of, of, uh, international relation of if these international institutions? Well, I think one is implementation. Um, I think obviously with the, uh, my biggest ones with the UN, um, again, with the peacekeeping force, um, I think it has overall, and it not necessarily to blame the peacekeeping force itself. It could also be something you could take about the security council and the way that it's set up, um, makes the UN oftentimes seem very, um, just, it's, it feels like there's an inability for action. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes we're like, well, we're paying a lot of money. Um, a lot of countries are saying, well, we're paying a lot of money to the UN, but we're not necessarily seeing the results um, when things like, you know, Rwanda happen. Mm-hmm. Um, or you could see what's going on in Syria. Yeah. Um, where's the UN to stop that? Yeah. Um, and then you could say, well, it's because Russia's on the, you know, um, UN Security Council and they're going to veto any action that's taken in there yeah. i mean it's it's the way it's set up to me is is one where the security council kind of is the un mm-hmm. um and it makes the general assembly seem rather insignificant yeah th- there's there are little there there are avenues where the general assembly can be effective but you're right most the the un um is the security council you said yeah. that perfectly there's a book that i read uh in college it's called five to rule them all and it's it's kind of a play on that Lord of the Rings mm-hmm. thing, like you know, one ring to rule them all, but five to rule them all because like the five security permanent security council members really do control that entire, in a lot of ways, do control that entire um, that entire institution. I think that's a really good critique. Uh, I think uh, another one um, is that, and it doesn't because it doesn't have inf- enforcement mechanisms. Like how effective really can they be in in telling different countries what to do if there really is no um, threat of the use of force against a state for non-compliance. I mean, you can write up all the resolutions that you want and you can say, we don't agree. You can write all the letters that you want, but ultimately a powerful state's going to do what a powerful state wants to do. See the United States and its invasion of Iraq in 2003. Yeah. The UN didn't sanction that, but the United States said, okay, UN, you and what army are going to stop us? Yeah. And so that that is one of the, the major critiques of these institutions is how effective really are they at, um, at creating an environment where where big, where big, powerful states still have to answer to something, and I think until it's able to do that, in any attempts that it's that it, those that organizations have made to try to limit that have received harsh, uh, harsh pushback. See Britain, right? Mm-hmm. The EU is one of the is probably the most far-reaching 
intrusive organizations in terms of the domestic domestic policies of its member states Mm -hmm. and britain had enough of it it rejected it now Mm -hmm. it's out of that institution so how much how much sovereignty intrusion can a can a uh, organization have before it starts to receive pushback and have exoduses of the of the major powers because as we mentioned earlier the major powers are are paramount to those institutions success mm-hmm. so it's it's a it's really really about ba- it's a really delicate balance that these that we have to have to play here and then we have to ask ourselves are they even important mm-hmm. you know the current administration has a very negative view mm-hmm. um philosophically on these institutions and sees that they're not they only really matter on the margins and they they they're they're more of a uh more of a encumbrance more of a more of a um negative than they are positive which i would disagree with but um that's that's the, the approach they're taking so it's just uh it, it's really really difficult and i think there's there's another um a, another critique is it's just a new form of imperialism because when you do talk about uh powerful states and their ability to just kind of still do whatever they want mm-hmm. but yet all of these smaller states are bo- are bound to these to these rules that they seemingly powerful can just flaunt anytime that they want or they they can just they they cannot listen to it any at any moment and then not really receive really any sort of pushback. So is it just a new way of powerful states dictating to the weaker states how things are going to be done, but just in a nicer package? Yeah. I think that's another critique that you hear a lot about these international institutions too. Um, so I guess it just kind of gets down to this question of do they matter? Yeah. I don't know. I th- I, th- I think they do. Yeah, I do too. I, I think they do because I think they've they've done a lot to, at least at, at minimum, even if they aren't one hundred percent always. They're not batting a thousand in every humanitarian crisis. Mm-hmm. They're not batting. They're not fixing every single world problem here and now. I think that what they have done, at, at least the minimum, is create that environment where major powers do not go to war with each other because it's created so much interdependency that the cost of going to war with another country is so great that it forces states to find alternative mm-hmm. alternative paths to res- resolve their grievances or mm-hmm. to get what they want. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately all of these institutions in combination with each other have created that. Yeah, I think there's no greater example than what political scientists call today as the era of great peace. That we haven't had... We haven't had a major conflict between major powers for this long in human history. Yeah. It's 70 years, 70 plus years of great power peace. And what is the cause of that? Mm-hmm. I think a realist like Kenneth Waltz, who's like the founder, the founder of defensive realism, defensive realist theory would say that it's has more to do with the balance of power that between states and then also nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I think a liberalist like, um, uh, Cohen and Martin, they mm-hmm. would uh, they would argue that it, it it's this these institutions which creates norms that influence ideas and behavior over time kind of alleviates mm-hmm. the the um, the concerns that states have when there is no sort of um, there's no nothing that's binding them together yeah and and over time that's self reinforcing mm-hmm. and over and that creates those in, and that kind yeah. of creates the foundation for those institutions. And there's also the great um, political philosopher Matthew Reeves who also <laughs> thinks that maybe it's a little bit of both. It's a little um, bit of both. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Can we expand on that? Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, nuclear weapons, for example, um, 
you know, Kenneth Waltz would probably, you know, with the nuclear deterrence there, it'd probably be like, you know, um, the cost of war just between, if you're looking at, you know, Russia and the U S would be too great because it wouldn't cause the destruction of the world as we know it. Yeah, absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think the institutions we have now, like the UN, these arbiter, like the world trade organization, EU, um, African union foster, an idea and actions of communication and dialogue that deter large military um, interventions because there are ways to circumvent that. Um, Not to say that these will always be flaws and that all military interventions will be stopped from now on, Mm -hmm. but I think it provides the norms of saying like, hey, we went through the proper channels to dispute this. Um, Where it, It gives people or nation states the ability to find alternatives to mass conflicts yeah i think i i think that perfectly sums it up uh i don't think i could have said that better myself so i think i just if there's one kind of if there's one thing that you want to leave this episode on what what would you want to leave our listeners with that cooperation matters um i know we may have varying opinions on the U.S.'s role in this cooperation, whether you think we should have an increased role or a lesser role in cooperation. Or, and by cooperation, I don't mean you know, being friendly to your neighbor. I mean uh, being a part of these institutions like um, the U.N., NATO. Mm-hmm. Um, some would argue we put, we put more into the system than we get back. It's a fair critique, mm-hmm. um, especially for an organization like NATO. Yeah. Um, but I think in the long run, in the bigger picture, um, this cooperation is vital to not just U.S. Um, foreign policy, but to U.S. national security, the U.S. economy, um, world economy and world security. This is a vital um, part of our nation's um, uh, duty is to be one of the leading, the leader um, in these institutions, because when the U.S. leads from the front um, in these organizations, the world is a safer place. I agree. Perfectly put, Matt. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I think we will uh, we'll get back to you guys next month. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, you can find us again on kxrwvancouver.org. Uh, you've been listening to The Republic. I'm Jake. And I'm Matt. Have a great month. Why settle for fast food when you can have fresh food? At 6th Avenue Bistro, the menu emphasizes local ingredients and authentic preparations that highlight the flavors, textures, and colors of the season. More information available about their menu, happy hour, and catering services at 6thAvenueBistro.com. KXRW would like to thank our friends at New Vansterdam for supporting our radio community. New Vansterdam is the premier cannabis market in the Vancouver area. They carry a variety of cannabis products ranging from pre-rolls, vape cartridges and edibles, to CBD topicals, oils, and tinctures. New Vansterdam is located in the Heights Shopping Center on the corner of Mill Plain and Andreessen Road. Open 8 a.m. to 11 p.m., 365 days a year. More information available at newvansterdam.com. That's newvansterdam.com.